0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. I'm going to preach from Second Peter 2, uh, which is a uh, passage about judgment. Um, so it's a little bit darker and heavier. I don't want you to feel uh, worried about hearing a sermon about judgment. Um, I grew up hearing from what we called hellfire and brimstone preachers, and um, and they would quite literally scare the hell out of us. And, um, and so it would like, that's that's how like all of my, my age group, we all got saved that way. We were just so scared that we ran to the altar. Um, but uh, God's judgment is a very real thing. Um, we see God's judgment throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We see his wrath poured out on ungodly people. Um, and that is a, an attribute of God that is a, a actually a good and holy attribute. Um, his wrath is just, and when we see his justice played out, we should praise him for that. Um, now, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, his death and resurrection, we hope in our hope, our secure and eternal hope is in the fact that judgment and God's wrath is no longer upon us, but rather it was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And so there's nothing left for us to be afraid of or worried about or be, be scared by uh, because all of God's wrath is poured out on the Son. And instead of wrath, we receive God's grace and his mercy and his abundance of love. And that is what the gospel is. Now, um, that's central message is so important to our church that that is the, the message that resounds week in and week out at New Heights. Uh, we call it the gospel. It just means good news. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that we're saved by believing and repenting and nothing else. We can't add anything to that. We can't take anything away from that. And in chapter 2... Um, what we see is Peter uh, gives us kind of his thesis of Second Peter, the the second letter that he's writing is specifically to deal with false teachers. In chapter one, he deals with a, a reminder to his as readers of that they are to have hope in the return of Jesus and live in holiness until Jesus comes back. Now, in chapter two, this week as well as next week, our pastors are going to unpack the the point and the reason for the letter, which is false teachers. And so Peter was. Specifically specifically writing for the occasion of people teaching a false gospel. They were adding to or taking away from the true gospel. Now, uh, this can be a, a difficult topic because we see a lot of false teachers in our day. Um, there have been, and I want you to know, it's not a new thing. There have been false teachers um, all the way back into the Old Testament. During Jesus' time, there were false prophets, and he promised us that there would continue to be false teachers. Uh, one of our deacons, uh, Travis Hatfield, always gives me, anytime that he's at Walmart and he sees a Joel Osteen book, on sale, he buys it for me makes good kindling for campfires, um, levels up some desks, stuff like that. Um, but I, he, he does that because because he knows that uh, Joel Osteen's a false teacher, and so he does it to kind of mess with me and maybe get those books off the shelves also. <laughs> um, but but we see, uh, we see a lot of false teachers, and I think specifically for us, we live in a time where it's really easy to get teaching out to the world. We live in a time where teaching can easily be recorded. We've got people watching our service online right now. It can go out uh Very broadly and very easily, and so teaching, biblical teaching, is easy to get out. And um, and when there are false teachers, uh, we need to recognize that. Um, and so I, I just want to encourage you all to be well versed in the scriptures, um, in the gospel itself. And if you have, like, if you're listening to sermons or podcasts or reading books, and you have any doubts about what you're reading or if you have questions about what you're reading or listening to, I'd encourage you to ask your pastors. We'd be happy to not just give you our opinions. Uh, We want to show you what the Word of God has to say about that, and that's that's your pastor's job, so we want to help you with that. And that's exactly what Peter is writing for. He's writing to these people to help them understand um, that there were some people that were trying to Um, to trick them with their false teaching. So let's look at that. Two points in today's sermon. Uh, Number one is that false prophets will come. We have that promise in the Bible. And then secondly, that judgment will come, that God will ultimately take care of them and we'll look at what judgment looks like for them. Let me give you this warning from Matthew 7. This is from Jesus' sermon on the mount. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So that, in our world, listen, there are opponents of the gospel, right? They're atheistic people. There are people of, of religions that are, I would say, demonic, that are opposed to the gospel. I would put Islam in this category. Um, so we have people that are opponents of the gospel, but what we're going to deal with and look at the next two weeks at our church in this book is um, deviance of the gospel. They're not outwardly opposing the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're not outwardly denying the death and resurrection of Jesus. Rather, they're adding or taking away from it. Um, taking teaching that is not biblical and infusing it with the gospel. Um, let, me, let me make it this uh, analogy. Uh, you guys all remember a guy named Judas, right? Like nobody names their kid Judas. Like you we are expecting a baby. Like Judas probably isn't on the, you know, you've got like a list of names you want to consider and then over on this side you've got like Judas, Adolf. you know, like other names that you're not really, cons- Osama, you know, like, like, you know, names that you're not really considering. Okay. Um, and so the reason that we don't name our kids Judas is because he's one of the most famous betrayers in all of history. And Judas, um, as one of the 12 that Jesus had in his uh, 12 apostles, he sends Judas out included with the other 11. Um, he sends him out for the mission of preaching the gospel. Judas went with them. He preached the gospel message. He healed people. He passed out bread and fish that Jesus multiplied. He had a front row to the miracles. He was hands, on in the ministry of Jesus, but yet he was a false apostle. And so that's, that's why Jesus is making sure that we understand that the people who come to, to, uh, to, to sway us from our allegiance to the gospel are not going to come in an oppositional way, but they're going to come in a deviant way, seeking to say, yeah, I believe in the gospel, but then have a, a deviant uh, strategy, like a sheep or like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, And so he begins to warn us of these deviations in verse 1. He says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So here, the swift destruction, we see the judgment of God, the wrath of God will be upon these people, showing us that they're not true converts to Christianity. Um, Anybody in here love to read ancient Greek literature? Literature. All right, yeah, one of y'all. Cool, a couple of you. Um, The rest of y'all need to live a little bit. Okay. well, let me tell you about some ancient Greek literature that you might actually have heard of and be familiar with. It's a story known as the Trojan Horse. Show of hands if you've heard of the Trojan Horse. All right, even though, even you people that aren't fans of ancient Greek literature probably heard this story. But let me re- recap it for you. In about the 12th century BC, um, the Greeks were sieging the city of Troy. And as they um, surrounded it to attack it, they found themselves at kind of a stalemate with the city of Troy. And um, we can't definitively confirm this, but as the legend goes, um, the, the Greeks built a wooden horse. And, um, and they took a guy named Odysseus and they put him in the wooden horse with a, around 30. There's some different accounts, but around 30 of the best men from the Greek army. And then the rest of the Greek army got on their boats and they seemingly sailed away. And so the people of Troy are kind of like peeking over the, over the fence like Wilson on Home Improvement. And they're like, hey guys, they're leaving. But they left this really cool horse. And, um, and so when night comes, what do they do? They roll the horse into the city because it's like, this is good, like home decor. Uh, so this giant horse, we're going to keep it. And so they roll the horse into the city, close the gate behind it. And at night, Odysseus and 30 uh, well-trained soldiers jump out, kill a bunch of people, open the city gates, let the Greek army come into the city, and they overthrow the city of Troy. Now, the, this Trojan horse has become an analogy for lots of different things in life, of things that sneak in um, and attack in a, in a way that the victim is unaware. And, and what's interesting is in the ancient Greek language of the descriptors of that event, when, when that is described in ancient Greek literature, the word that's used to describe that siege of that city, the overtaking of that city, is heresis. And it's where we get the word heresies from. And so hierases, literally, most literally, what it means is to attack a, a, a territory and overtake it. And so Peter uses the same ancient Greek word, hierases in this passage of Scripture in verse 1, when he says that they're secretly bringing in destructive hierases, destructive heresies. And what he means is that they are seemingly uh, gospel people, but they're sneaking their way into the church with destructive teaching that is damning for the souls of people who adhere to it. And Peter says that we need to be on guard of this and ultimately that God will judge these people. You see, false teachers enter the church, not through like a big wooden horse, but through a Trojan gospel, a gospel that we might look at on the surface and say, that looks nice. I'd like to have that. But in reality, it's it's. It's dangerous and will lead to our spiritual demise. You see, heresies are departures from the gospel, an effort to hijack gospel territory, using the death of Jesus ultimately for the false teacher's perversion and self-service. Paul dealt with false teaching like Judaism, which is an ancient, um, an ancient teaching of uh, Jewish people who would say to, to be a Christian, you still had to follow all the Jewish commands and ceremonies, things like circumcision and keeping all the feasts. Um, uh, Paul dealt with that. If you read the book of Galatians, that's mainly the response of the letter to the church in Galatia as they were dealing with uh, Judaism and legalism. There's a, there was a, um, in Colossians, he's writing and he's dealing with a teaching called Gnosticism, which was a, an approach. That kind of denied physical attributes of of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. They would deny that and say it was spiritual only. And so that led to a place where they just, they denied anything physical, any physical blessings. They would would try to remove themselves from all of that. It was a heretical teaching. Uh, Peter here is dealing with a heresy of denying the return of Jesus, the second coming of Christ. It says in Second Peter 3, 4, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so Peter specifically is writing to deal with these people who are saying Jesus isn't coming back. And if Jesus isn't truly returning, it seems that these false teachers had lost any incentive to live holy lives. And so the people that were sitting in these churches listening to these pastors were living however they wanted to and sinning as much as they wanted to. They're like, yeah, Jesus died and rose and now I can do whatever I want. That's not... A true gospel. See, remember the theme of the letter is hope and holiness. Because we have hope in Jesus' death for our sins, his resurrection, which gives us life, and his return to bring us into his eternal kingdom. That causes us to live morally upright, in a good witness, in a holy way, to abstain from sin, to not do the things the Bible tells us not to do, and to do the things the Bible commands us to do. And look how their faulty doctrine had led them to live in verses 2 and 3. Many will follow their sensuality. That's a word that means their sexual perversion. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That means they're going to take money from you their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Now Peter's not condemning sex and money. The Bible tells us to use our money to glorify God. He tells us to uh, give generously to the church for the ministry. Uh, But we are not to give sacrificially and financially to a false teacher to prop up his way of living. Like I think of guys on TV and the internet, like Kenneth Copeland, who's buying private jets from Tyler Perry, and he's the one that tried to blow COVID away. If you remember that, Um, and so uh, you you got people like this, and it it blows my mind that people send money to people like this. And so he's saying, money's not bad in and of itself, but they're going to try to exploit you for it. Sex is not bad in and of itself, but but these false teachers are going to be motivated more by their sexual perversion than by the true gospel. And so I don't find it surprising at all that sensuality and greed are specifically mentioned as results of these false teachers that Peter's audience were were dealing with. You see, when you have bad doctrine, it leads to bad living. Every time. And we think that, like we get it backwards when we think that our lives are going to lead us into good Bible teaching. No, good Bible teaching is going to lead us into good living. Um, It it is important for us to get the order correct. And so orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, meaning that our our right doctrine of what the Bible says is going to lead to our right practice of glorifying God in holiness. And so we find deviations from the true gospel. And where we find those deviations, it's not uncommon. And You've seen it on uh, internet, listened to it on podcasts, read about it on blogs. When you find those deviations from the true gospel, usually you find deviations into an abuse of sex and money as well. Most false teachings and false doctrines are self-serving. And so when you're looking for the true gospel... Find a preacher, find a church, find messages and biblical teaching that is not self-serving. Instead, that is God-glorifying. That's why we say, welcome to New Heights Church. We love you, but you're a jacked-up sinner. We're not going to boost you up like you're better than you are. We're going to be honest with you and, and let you understand that you were born a sinner, and by grace alone, you've been saved out of that mess. And so the false gospels that we commonly see, I think there are really two that we see all the time in our region here. Uh, We see a false gospel of legalism that's birthed out of uh, generations of tradition and Appalachian religion that has birthed legalism. It's the gospel plus the gospel of Jesus, his death and resurrection, plus not cussing, plus not doing this, plus not listening to secular music, plus yada, 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 dressing the right way on Sunday. You add whatever you want. And so we have this gospel plus works. And listen, when you add works to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. It's no longer good news. If I have to work my way to heaven, we're all damned. There's no way any of us are getting in if we have to work our way there. And so it ceases to be good news. It's not the gospel anymore. The, the other one, the other heresy I think that we see very commonly is the gospel of prosperity. And it's the opposite. Instead of weighing me down with a burden of works, it boosts me up to be more important than I actually am. That God exists to bless me. That Jesus died on the cross so that I would never get sick, I would never have to deal with death, and I would never uh, be lacking financially. That's a false gospel. The gospel of prosperity is not what the Bible teaches. Actually, the Bible promises that you will suffer. And so when we see these heresies, we have to know enough of the scriptures to have discernment, church, to say, "That's that's not biblical. If you have doubts about that, that's where you come to your church and you ask brothers and sisters in Christ or your pastors to help you uh, discern what's being taught. Um, In the United States Treasury, they train their employees to know what the treasury notes look like really well so they can acknowledge counterfeits. That when, when counterfeiters try to pr- print false Benjamins, um, that they, you know, it's because it's all about those, I hear. And, um, and when, they, when they print false Benjamins, they're able to recognize that they're false and they're not genuine. And they know this not by studying all kinds of fake bills, but because they study the right ones. And so, Christian, listen to me. You are to have your nose in your Bible studying it, knowing it in and out, and understanding the gospel at your core. So that when you encounter a counterfeit, you'll be able to understand that's not the true gospel. You see, our job as the church with false teachers is to refute them and to mark and avoid false teaching. But the good news of this judgment passage is that God is the one who is the judge. We don't have to attack false teachers. We don't have to go like we don't have to find churches that had have bad Bible teaching and go picket their their buildings, you know, and, and stand out front and with megaphones and shout. No, we let God handle the judgment. Instead we rightly hold up the true gospel. You see, our aim is not just the downfall of deviance, but instead the lifting high of the true gospel. And so we trust that judgment will come, which is the second thing this passage shows us. We know that false teachers will come, and we know also that judgment will come. Peter's been drawing on prophecy and scriptural examples for his teaching. And he uses three examples that we're going to go through against evil in the past, in history, to assure his readers and us that God will have vengeance in the present and in the future. He uses the examples of fallen angels, the people of Noah's world, and then an example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Paul says about about, uh, false teachers in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, for such men are false apostles. He'd been talking about false teachers in the context. And he calls them deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Remember Hirae to, is to uh, sneak attack, enter in under disguise to take over. In verse 14 he says, No wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan is a created being, and he, uh, he is an angel that was made and, and was in heaven with God. The Bible tells us that he was cast out of heaven with a third of the created angels. And so Peter and Paul make the comparison of false teachers to, the, to that crowd, to demonic activity. Satan and demons are fallen angels, and Peter says about them in verse 4, If God did not spare angels... When they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. You see, the wrath of God is on angelic beings who rebelled, who became false angels, false teachers, and that a wrath of God on them is proof that God will also have vengeance on uh, modern-day false teachers. Peter continues by showing God's wrath in the global flood of Noah's day. He says in verse five, "If if God did not spare the ancient world." But preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You see, God's wrath is seen in carrying out a just execution and wrath of those who were opposed to him in the ancient world when he flooded the world. But in grace saved eight who were serving him. Furthermore, he uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah stands as an example of God's divine justice. These cities were destroyed for their wickedness, uh, pro- most prominently their homosexual perversion, and God destroys their cities in raining down fire from heaven. And Peter cites that as well in 2 Peter 2 6 through 8. He says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so these three examples are examples where sinful creatures are attempting hierases. Attempting to sneak in, to overtake territory for their own perversion of of their teaching rather than God's glory. The angels sought to conquer and rule heaven. The people of Noah's day sought to conquer and rule the world even though God had created it. And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah made their cities um, refuges of prideful uh, perversion. And Jesus tells us the meek will inherit the earth, not the wicked. And in all three of these cases, not only does God bring wrath and justice on on the false teachers and on those who were opposed to God, but he also brings grace and salvation to those who humbled themselves, who trusted in God, the angels that chose not to rebel Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives who chose to find their refuge in God's sovereign plan of an ark. and and Lot and his family who hoped in the Lord rather than their own pleasure. You see, it's if, 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 if. If God won't let angels take over heaven and if God won't Nephilim take over the earth and if God won't let perversion run rampant, then is where we finally get to in verse nine. Verses four through eight, Peter says, if this, if this, if this, if this, and then in verse nine, he says, then, verse "Then," verse nine, he says, then the Lord knows how, To rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see, if God has proven himself fully competent in the past, then guess what? He's fully competent for your life right now. If God has preserved those who are humble and repentant in the past, guess what? If you humble yourselves and stay repentant, then he will will preserve you now. You know one of the things that just like annoys I think most people to the core is when you know how to do something really well like your job for example something you do every day and and then you have people in your life that come and tell you how to do it better don't that just like get under your skin you just want to punch somebody right maybe I'm the only one I, maybe it's just confession time but it's like when my kids try to help me parent oh my gosh it's like y'all ever had kids before I know I'm not the greatest at this, but I know a heck of a lot more than y'all do, right? So, um, and, and so, but we do the same thing to the Lord sometimes. That God's up to something in our lives and we see trials and we see suffering and we see difficulty and we look at it and we're like, Lord, in our, in our prayers, like, Lord, maybe, maybe let me tell you how this could go better. Lord, let me, let me give you some suggestions on some, some better things you could be doing in my life right now. God has taken care of people in ancient times, people in the first century when this letter is written, if he's taken care of the righteous and punished the unrighteous for millennia, then he can take care of you and you can place your hope in him and you can be secure in that. You see, if God has created all things, guess what? He can sustain all things. Some of y'all need to just hear the if-thens of Scripture. You see, if God has been faithful, then he will remain faithful. If God's law is good, then we can walk in it and our children can walk in it. If the tomb is empty, then your sin is gone. Stop acting like it's not. Stop walking in guilt when God's accomplished it on the cross and said, It is finished. Specifically, Peter says, if God has punished false teachers from fallen angels angels to the false prophets of the first century, then God's going to take care of the judgment of them in the future, and he's going to preserve the righteous. God will preserve his children and he'll punish false, false teachers. His judgment is coming just as sure as his kingdom is. And to finish the passage in verses 10 and 11, he says, Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Peter's saying if angels are not pronouncing judgments, then we shouldn't either. And we should leave that up to God. We judge actions all the time. We judge doctrine all the time. But we don't judge hearts. We leave the judgment of hearts to the Lord. The Bible tells us to judge doctrine and actions, but not hearts. And so instead, we ought to examine things like this. Look at verse 10. When it says, these false teachers that Peter's talking about, they are bold and willful. And they do not tremble. They're not ashamed of what they're teaching. They're not worried about their souls. They're not worried about the condition that they stand in before God. They don't tremble. My boys, um, my boys are obsessed with guns. Anybody else? Some of you, some of our men are obsessed with guns, right? <laughs> um, and my boys, like they've they've graduated from Nerf guns. Well, I mean, when they love to shoot real guns, but then there's this middle ground called airsoft. Those things scare the crap out of me, right? Because it's like it's not a real gun, but it's a real gun, right? And and they'll have those things, and they're they're a little bit more careless with them because they're they're airsoft. But I'm like. Y'all got to treat these things like I keep the barrel down, like gun safety, all this stuff. I'm like, you cannot uh, be careless with this. And when when my boys are carrying those things around and they're carelessly swinging the barrel everywhere, I tremble. <laughs> like I'm taking cover. I'm hiding from them. I'm grabbing the gun away from them, that kind of thing. Um, but but when we like when a barrel of a gun is, is at you, there should be a holy fear that comes in. you. That's just instinct. Right. But what Peter's describing is the barrel of God's wrath is on these false teachers and he says they don't tremble. He says, instead he says they're bold and willful. They stand, they they puff their chest out about their false teaching and their false gospel. And some of you may not be Bible teachers, you might not be standing in a pulpit teaching a false gospel, but you're living one. And if you're living a false account of the gospel, if you come to church and hear about Jesus' death on a cross and his resurrection, and you leave here and act totally different and act like it's not a reality for you, you're just as bad as these false teachers. And God's wrath is the barrel of God's wrath is squared solely on your chest. And it should cause you to tremble. And if it doesn't, then you need to do some serious soul searching. But for those of us who are in Christ, that barrel has been pointed elsewhere. We hope and trust in God because he has removed the wrath from us. He's taken the crosshairs from us and he put it on his son on the cross. And he unloaded it on Jesus. It says the cup of wrath was poured out fully on Jesus. Jesus cries out from the cross, why have you forsaken me? And he dies the death that we all deserve. And he's buried in a tomb and he raises from the dead. And so when I come to a table like we will in just a moment to receive bread and juice that are representations of Jesus' body and blood on the cross, I don't come with trembling hands worried that lightning's going to strike me. I come in confidence, the Bible says, that I have confidence not in myself because I'm better. I have confidence in another. His name is Jesus. I have confidence that he died for me. He rose me spiritually from the death of my sin and he has seated me with him. When God sees me, he doesn't see an object of wrath. Instead, he sees an object of grace. He sees a man who is not deserving of it, but he sees someone who is a son now, adopted into a family of God. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.